Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on effective teaching strategies. Good morning, everybody. I'm Jen Middleton, and I am very pleased to be back with you again this morning for some more fun with faculty development. And today we're going to talk about a model called the Bowen model for the purpose of working on how do we help our learners advance their clinical reasoning. Probably the most important thing we do as medical teachers is help our learners learn how to make a diagnosis and how do they reason through getting to that. And one of the things that separates us as physicians, those of us who are physicians, from nurses, physician assistants, other physician extenders who, don't get me wrong, have an extremely valuable role to play, but the way physicians learn how to clinically reason through diagnostic dilemmas is unique to how we work and how we help our learners learn how to do that is really important. So what are our objectives for this morning? Well, we're going to describe the importance of translating a patient's history into what's called a problem representation. And all these words in red we're going to define and you're going to be pros at this after 45 minutes. We're going to then explain how medical learners use problem representations to choose illness scripts, another new term that we're going to learn. And then we're going to diagnose and respond to where learners get stuck. So when learners get stuck with their clinical reasoning, um, how do we respond in a way that doesn't just give them the answer, but helps them learn how to puzzle through it themselves so that the next time they're able to take that step more independently. So that's what we're going to do. All right. The world of medical precepting and teaching is kind of a jungle. We've used this metaphor before. There's a lot going on. We have a lot of pressures on our time. So as you all hopefully know by now, I am the ultimate pragmatist in faculty development. All of this stuff you can do very quickly on the fly. So what is Bowen's diagnostic reasoning model? And Dr. Judith Bowen would probably be slightly horrified at how I have abridged her model. Um, this was published about 10 years ago. But for the purposes of pragmatism, I've abridged it. So what are the basic steps? What did Dr. Bowen publish to say this is how learners make clinical decisions? And I'm going to say, before we even go through this, that this pertains to physicians in the first 20 to 30 years of their career. So I'm going to make the assumption that all of us in this room, at least right now, are operating under this model. There may be folks viewing this video who have been in practice for greater than 20 to 30 years, and the way that you clinically reason through diagnostic dilemmas changes, actually. So you may have seen this with some of your senior clinician teachers in residency, or perhaps here in fellowship, who will sometimes just look at a patient and be like, it's this. And you're like, what happened in that moment? That they just were like, poof, they knew what it was, and they're always right. And if you ask them why, they'll say, I don't know, it just is. So something happens where this merges into a more sophisticated version of what's almost a pattern recognition fuzzy logic. So folks who have been in practice for more than 20 to 30 years are not operating under this model. That's an important thing for us to remember as teachers when we have that when we get to that stage in our career, for those of us in here, and we have that moment to remember to think through this when we're explaining our reasoning to learners. 
So what happens? How do you make a diagnosis? So this is the undifferentiated patient you're making a diagnosis on. Well, the patient or their family tells you a story, right? That's what you start with. Take a good history. And you get some data from that story. And hopefully, if you're doing this successfully, you ask the right questions to get the data you need to make the diagnosis. And then you use that data to develop something called a problem representation, which we'll define in a moment. You then use that problem representation to search for and choose an illness script, which we'll also define in a moment, and then poof, you have a diagnosis. So this is what Dr. Bowen <coughs> hypothesizes is the process that happens when we're making a clinical diagnosis. Again, for the purposes of teaching, we're using this as a model. This isn't probably exactly what's going on in everybody's brain, but it gives us a way to intervene when learners get stuck, which hopefully you'll see in a moment. So what happens first is that data acquisition, all right? So we have this treasure chest of the patient's history. We have to mine all the good stuff out of there. So based on your knowledge, your experience, and other factors, you hopefully know the right questions to ask to get that, but maybe you don't. You guys are probably working with students and residents, you know, here at Kobacher, for example, who don't have a lot of experience in the hospice palliative setting, and they don't know how to ask some of the right questions to get to what it is. So they give you a history, and you probably have to get more information from them potentially. So you have to know how to get the right questions. Usually, once you've seen a little bit, this is hard to do if you're a third-year medical student, but first-year residents can do this most of the time. Very, very quickly, you have this kind of first impression of what you think is probably going on, what's called a mental abstraction. And when you form that mental abstraction, and again, this is all happening subconsciously, that kind of guides how, what questions you're going to ask going forward. All right? So if you ever have somebody presenting to you with a totally non-directed history, they didn't form a mental abstraction. So let's do an example. What's a mental abstraction? So I got a 45-year-old guy who's obese with a painful toe, and this is a big glass of wine. What's he got? Gout. Okay? Mental abstraction. Poof. It happened like that, right? Six-year-old female, fever and a sore throat. What she got? Poof, right? Strep is what the audience said. That's that mental abstraction. So when you look at your schedule, when you're seeing patients in the office, you instantly, if there's somebody on there with a complaint already based on their age, their gender, and what that complaint is, poof. You have some ideas about what you think it is, and that directs how you take your history, okay? So hopefully, if you get all the right details from your history, then you form a problem representation. What's a problem representation? It's a one-sentence summary defining the case, and this is key, in abstract terms. Abstract terms. So this is not a problem representation. This is a history. So this is Fred, whose BMI is 39. His big toe hurts. It really hurts. It started all of a sudden, and he drinks half a bottle of wine a day. At least that's what he says. So what's the common axiom? You've got to multiply that by two or three to get to reality, right? <laughs> so all right, so that's Fred. So this sounds an awful lot like the history that I hear medical students give me, right? It's very patient-specific language. This sounds like the history I would expect a second or third year resident to give me, or one of you if we were talking about a case together as a colleague. We have a middle-aged man who's obese with big toe pain that's severe 10 out of 10, sudden onset, regular alcohol use. So these are more abstract terms. They could describe lots of different folks, potentially, each of those terms, not necessarily just Fred. 
but something happens. And if you are precepting outpatient or inpatient, you see this happen between PGY1 and 2 to 3, where the language that learners start bringing to you when they're presenting goes from this, this is Fred, blah, 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 his big toe hurts, to this. I have a middle-aged obese man with a sudden onset of 10 out of 10, great toe pain. So those are learners who are advancing. And again, folks advance through this model most of the time, whether we help them or not. Um, this is really important though. If you don't get to this, if you don't get to this abstract language, you're not gonna make the diagnosis, according to Dr. Bowen. Here's another example. So here's Alicia. So this is patient-specific language. Her temperature was 101 at home. It hurts to swallow. It's starting suddenly. She's not coughing. Mom got the flashlight out and looked and saw the white stuff on her tonsils. So here's what it looks like in abstract terms. School-age child, fever, sore throat, dysphagia, sudden onset, no cough, tonsil exudate. All right, so seeing the difference here between going from patient-specific to abstract, okay? So the problem representation takes these patient-specific details and turns them into abstract terms. So last night becomes acute onset, happened before becomes recurrent, just in me becomes monoarticular, okay? So let's take a look at page three. So we've got kind of a recap of everything that we talked about on page two of the handout. Let's take a look at page three of our handout, and there's a couple of presentations there that are in lay language, patient-specific terms. Can you take a moment and just jot down how you would turn those into abstract presentations? What are the, what's the abstract language that you would use for those, uh, for those two presentations? And I tried to pick super generic stuff that hopefully works across multiple specialties, so. All right, do you have any volunteers to take the mic? Talk about Gary? So first of all, what's Gary have? His nappy, right? So do I have anybody who, so for folks watching us on video, we have 50, the first case, 54-year-old Gary with a day and a half of really bad abdominal pain. It started in the middle of his belly. It's now in the lower right part of his belly. He's puking, he's not hungry, he has a fever. So do I have a volunteer to give me that case in abstract language? Thank you. So we have a middle-aged man with acute onset, severe abdominal pain in the right lower quadrant, accompanied by fever, vomiting, and anorexia. You don't get much better than that. Perfect. Perfect, 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 perfect. Okay? So really bad. We had most of the same, but you get the idea. All right? Really bad is severe. Middle of the belly is periumbilical, lower right, right lower quadrant, puking emesis, not hungry, anorexic. All right? How about the next case? So we got 26-year-old Michelle. She's missed two periods. Her breasts hurt. She feels like she's going to vomit, but she hasn't, and she's extremely tired. What's Michelle have? She's pregnant. So do I have another volunteer to give me Michelle's uh, case in abstract language? And for the record, just reviewing, you, both form, you all formed mental abstractions for both of these cases, right? Happy pregnancy. Poof. <laughs> um, I usually just see the age. I don't do the. That's okay. He's same so, age. 
26-year-old female presented with amenorrhea of two months duration, reports painful breast with um, nausea and fatigue, denies emesis. Perfect. I think I had almost exactly the same. So she has amenorrhea with breast tenderness, nausea, not emesis, fatigue. All right, so we're getting kind of how we go from specific stuff to abstract terms, right? That's really important for the next step. Everybody good? Okay, ready to roll on? So assuming you made a good problem representation, you're problem representation experts now, right? So that's what the problem representation is. You take this specific patient lay language stuff, you turn it into an abstract sentence. So assuming you can make a problem representation, what do you gotta do next to get to the diagnosis? You search for and select an illness script. Illness scripts trigger your clinical memory, according to Dr. Bowen, and they make stored knowledge accessible for reasoning. You all have hundreds, if not thousands, of these stored in your subconscious after residency training for your specialty. Illness scripts tell the story of a disease, okay? So what happens? Well, you form this problem representation, and then you've got all of these illness scripts stored away of, again, these are all kind of prototypes. Every patient is different, of course, but you've got all these prototypes stored, and you take this problem representation, and if you match it to the right illness script, that's how you make a diagnosis. And illness scripts are stored in abstract language. That's why you have to have the problem representation in abstract words. So what's an illness script? Predisposing conditions, the pathophysiology and the clinical findings. So you have these scripts for tons of stuff. You've probably learned some new ones during your fellowship this year, the way folks will present, you know, either end of life and or when they need palliation. So what's the illness script for gout? Well, again, typically it's a guy over the age of 40 and it's a guy who drinks alcohol. Maybe he uses diuretics for his blood pressure. What's the pathophysiology? Abnormal uric acid metabolism, the crystals precipitate out. Ouch, body doesn't like crystals where it's not supposed to be, inflammation. What are the clinical findings? It's sudden onset, severe pain, single joint, monoarticular, recurrent, it tends to come back again, okay? So what's the illness script for gout that you have stored in your subconscious? Probably looks like this. It's a monoarticular acute onset, exquisitely tender pain in the toe of an older male who drinks and he takes hydrochlorothiazide caused by abnormal uric acid metabolism and precipitation of crystals. All right? And then what do you do? Well, then hopefully you take Fred's story that you turned into a problem representation and you map it onto this illness script. It was monoarticular, it had an acute onset, it was severely tender, was his toe, he's an older dude, poof. This is what Dr. Bowen thinks happens subconsciously when you make a diagnosis. You start with a mental abstraction, you ask the right questions to get the data to confirm or refute that, you form this problem representation, and then you connect it to an illness script and you look for a match. And of course, the magic the art in medicine is that usually it's not completely a perfect match, right? So that's where things get a little tricky, but for the purposes of breaking it down for teaching and for some tr tricks to use when you're precepting, we simplify things a little bit. So what's the illness script for strep? School-age kids, <coughs> super contagious, pathophys, you all remember, streptococcal, 
bacteria that cause tonsillar edema and exudate. And what happens? Sudden onset, severe pain, fever, and classically these kids do not cough, right? So can we map Alicia's problem representation onto her illness script? So on page four is a review of what we just talked about on the top half of the page. And on the bottom half of the page is Alicia's problem representation. And at the bottom, very bottom of the page is the illness script. So can you map her problem representation onto the illness script just like we did for Fred? Let's take a minute and do that. So here's the illness script. That's the same that's printed at the bottom of page four. And here's what I, how I mapped it. All right, so these elements of the problem representation that map onto the illness script, poof, diagnosis. How are you guys feeling about problem representations and illness scripts and doing this mapping. Make sense? Feels, pre feels pretty intuitive, right? I mean, the cool thing about this process is that this is just what happens in residency. Um, it's not really medical school, it's residency. You have to have enough context to get enough history um, and to have seen enough stuff to get to this. But this is what happens in residency uh, for pretty much any specialty. It just kind of evolves. What we're gonna talk about next is what can you do to help it evolve, especially when folks get stuck, okay? So just to review, and this is novice learners and expert learners, so not those senior expert clinicians 20 to 30 years out, those guys aren't on the slide. But what do novice learners do? Again, medical students, they have a chief complaint and they regurgitate out a differential, right? What do expert learners do? What do residents do? They compare and contrast several relevant hypotheses or illness scripts against a problem representation. And if you listen to residents present, you'll hear them do this with increasing sophistication as they go from PGY1 to PGY2 to PGY3, okay? So there are some clues you can look for to help you figure out where folks are stuck in the model. And the most important thing about this model, just like the micro skills, is that you can't do this wrong. So don't be afraid that, well, what if I guess they're having a problem with data acquisition and it's really problem representation and I apply the wrong strategy. You can't do this wrong, all right? There's nothing you can do here that's gonna hurt somebody's clinical reasoning development. So what are some clues that folks are stuck with that data acquisition? They give you a history that doesn't have all the information. You listen to them present and you're like, you have all these questions in your head still that you wanna know about the patient. So they failed to identify what was important in the history as kind of the learning diagnosis. So what do you do then? What strategy can you employ? You can show them how to get the history, all right? You can model the acquisition. What are other clues that there's a data acquisition problem? They get to the end of the presentation and you just don't even, you don't, you don't have a mental abstraction. You're like, I don't even know where to start. I'm just completely stuck here. You have to ask for lots of details. It's not unusual. Remember we talked about questioning techniques not too long ago. You had to do a couple closed-ended questions. But if you have to ask lots of questions, there is a problem here with data acquisition, okay? And if you need to go in and talk to that patient yourself to figure out what's going on, then you definitely had a data acquisition problem. And again, this is not only the clue, but one of the best strategy is role modeling, taking that history. The other thing that you can do is to role model that mental abstraction. Again, this doesn't work for students. They haven't seen enough yet. But for residents, you can say, boy, based on age, gender, whatever simple thing, the first thing I think of is blank. 
let's go get some more history and see. How about problem representation issue? Well, there's a couple of different things you might notice there. They might have all the information, but it might be super disorganized. That might be because it's a diagnosis they haven't seen before. So they knew enough to ask some of the stuff, but it's not a diagnosis they've seen. Maybe they've read about it. Maybe they're not even that familiar with it. So what you can do then is kind of reorganize all the information they got in your own problem representation. We'll give you an example of that in a minute. The other clue that you have a problem represent problem is that they, they wind up their presentation, they, everything is there, but then they get to the end and their final statement at the end of their presentation is just kind of a jumble. It's, you, you hear all this great details in your mind as a preceptor, you're thinking, I know where this is leading, it's going to be gout, it's going to be strep throat, and then they kind of wrap up and it's just kind of blah, and you're like, huh, they had all the right stuff, how come, where's the problem representation? They didn't make problem representations. What can you do? You can, again, provide an example of what you, how you would have summarized all that information. So whether it's total disorganization or they did great until they got to the very end, either way, basically, you're creating the problem representation for them. You're role modeling how to do that. Other clues, this is classic. Have you ever heard this or said this yourself um, when you were a resident or when you're precepting? There's a diagnosis, but I know it's not that. I know it's not, I know it's not blank, but I, I don't know what it is. Classic, lay language. They didn't get to the abstract terms. You don't have a problem representation if you're stuck in lay language, patient-specific stuff, okay? So we're gonna finish going through this grid, and then we're gonna practice some of this, all right? So last but not least, what if the problem is down in the illness script? What clues might you see? Well, they may give you multiple diagnoses, but they don't have them prioritized in terms of what they think is most likely. They're giving you a differential, but they can't tell you which one's at the top. And there's one of two things. It could be a problem representation issue. They didn't make a good problem representation, and so they're having trouble prioritizing their diagnoses. But more likely, they do not have well-defined illness scripts, necessarily. So they have some vague ideas about what COPD is or about what CHF looks like, but they don't really have a firm illness script yet defined. So if you need to, create the problem representation and then help them prioritize. And a really magical way of doing that is to restate what the problem representation is and then, and then ask them to kind of compare contrast against the diagnoses. You can do that one for this one too. So sometimes they'll give you a differential that has nothing to do with the case. They give you all the details and then you hear the differential and you're like, okay, where did that come from? That's kind of bizarre. There they're getting stuck lining the problem representation up to the illness script. So just like up here before, help them prioritize, review the problem representation, and then ask support for each thing on, the, on their differential. And they'll, you'll see the light bulb kind of, oh yeah, it doesn't really fit any of those, does it? And then remember what we talked about in our last session, don't leave them stuck forever. Give them, teach them that pearl, micro skill three, you know, swoop in and do that when appropriate but help them prioritize and compare and contrast. And sometimes something really cool happens. You'll start doing this and poof, they'll get it. And that's way more beneficial to your learners than you just giving them the answer. How are we feeling about this grid? I know it's a little abstract. Why don't we put it to use, okay? 
Couple more clues on illness script, the differential that doesn't stop. And this isn't the third year medical student with the differential that doesn't start. This is the third year resident with the differential that doesn't stop. Third year resident should not have lengthy differential. So that's a clue they're having trouble matching. They give you a really long presentation. Again, not the medical student disorganized presentation, but the third year resident who should be clicking along and pretty comfortable. And they just go on and on and on and on. They're having trouble. They might be a reflector, all right? Remember back to our learning styles. But they also might be, get, they might be trying to reason through this subconsciously and getting stuck. So let's practice. And I have some kind of prototypical family medicine scenarios. On page five of your handout is our grid with our kind of skill clue diagnosis and strategy. So there are three scenarios. I'm gonna say for the interest of time, let's just do the first two. So page six and page seven. And if we have enough time, we'll talk through the third one together. But looking at our grid, what clue are you noticing in the history? What skill seems to be relevant? What strategy then? So let's say you found the clue was they're missing information, the skill is data acquisition, the strategy, role model getting the history. All right, so let's read through these two scenarios for a couple minutes. See, see what we think. And remember, you can't do this wrong. And for each of these, there's at least a couple of different ways you could go about it. And it's okay if you don't know the answer to the case either. Remember, you can be a good preceptor and not always, not always know what the answer is. Sometimes you're discovering it together with your resident. All right, in the interest of time, let's talk about scenario one. So scenario one, we have a third year resident who's presenting a 78 year old male who's had shortness of breath for one week. He has a history of COPD, CHF, and lung cancer, the lung trifecta, right? Shortness of breath is worse with exertion. He's not wheezing, but his legs are more swollen. Um, he's following his normal diet, except for chowing down at uh, his grandson's graduation party. And he took home some leftover cold cuts for a few meals afterwards. He forgot his inhalers for COPD last week. His lung cancer has been in remission for about a year. Uh, so I'm not sure. Is this patient shortness of breath from CHF? Is it from COPD or maybe even a PE? Eh, I'm stuck. So, what clue, what clue are you taking from this story? So multiple diagnoses that are not prioritized, right? Even though you, those of you with family medicine or internal medicine backgrounds, read through the story, probably one of those three went to the top of your differential pretty quickly, right? So, but the resident got stuck. I, I can't tell. It's just, he's got COPD, he's got seizure. Could, could even be a PE. He had lung cancer. I'm really worried about that. So what's the relevant skill, of course, is searching for and selecting that illness script. And the diagnostic reasoning strategy is to create this problem representation and help them prioritize. So do I have anybody willing to share an example of... And you might have had something else written down, so we'll hear other thoughts in a second. But first, while we're working here, do I have anybody willing to share an example of what they might say to this resident?
So first, I would commend them on their good data acquisition. Oh, uh, so we're, we're reinforcing what was yeah. done right, good micro skill. <laughs> um, and then let them know that the next step would be to create a problem representation and mash that to an illness script um, and then support the diagnosis with the data. So a, a general example, a 78-year-old man with one week of shortness of breath and dyspnea on exertion with lower extremity edema accompanied by dietary indiscretion likely CHF exacerbation. Mm -hmm. Yes. So there's a lot of debate, which I haven't mentioned yet, about should we tell residents we're using this model when we use it? Should we say, now we're going to create, you're stuck with this illness group, we're going to create a, and there's a lot of debate about whether we should do that or not. There are some folks who say, yes, we should be transparent teachers, and if residents know this language that we're using with them, then it lets us have a conversation with them about where they're stuck. The other side of the coin that folks will say is, you know, they're already feeling overwhelmed if they're stuck here, and I don't want to add more on to them feeling overwhelmed. They don't need to be medical education theory experts. It's okay. So I'm not going to say who's right, who's wrong. There's probably merit in both points of view, and that's a debate for another time. Um, but I will say, regardless of which side of that spectrum you fall on, you can use all of these techniques without telling the residents that you're using them, if that makes sense. So you can decide for you, teaching philosophically wise, where you fall on the debate, but this works either way. It's kind of cool. But I like very much your idea, which is to kind of create the problem representation. And something cool happens sometimes when you do that. So let me, let me repeat back what I'm hearing you say, you might say to your resident. So the shortness of breath is worse with exertion, his legs are more swollen, and he's increased his salt intake. And sometimes something really cool will happen. Even before you say CHF, they'll go, oh, it's CHF. Cool. All right, so that so if they still stuck, then I would add on. The, so to me, it sounds like CHF because, and then you're helping them to redefine the illness script at that point also. But if they've got the illness script and they're really just not matching because their problem representation wasn't very good, poof, they'll get there. Do I have any other thoughts about clue or problem here? Did anybody put anything other than multiple diagnoses not prioritized? So you put disorganized. Well, as a third year resident, I wouldn't expect them to take this long to present a patient to me ordinarily, right? So it is, it is a little disorganized. And then that's a problem representation problem. And maybe they've never seen somebody with this constellation of chronic issues with a CHF exacerbation before, right? So then what was your strategy? What would you say? Oh, microphone, sorry, microphone. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Ha ha ha. Well, I like that he put in the past medical history because that kind of gives us the mm -hmm. differential, and then he needs to connect the past medical history with what the problem he's presenting right now. Yes. So he's doing it right that the wheezing is not so much, so COPD falls down. He's taking his medications, his, you know, just missed one dose, so mm -hmm. most likely not COPD. So it really comes down in the differential list. The CHF goes high, why? Because there is worse shortness of breath, worsening lower extremity, um, edema, and um, increased salt intake. Mm -hmm. So that goes higher in the differential. And he also said that the lung cancer is in remission for a year, so that actually falls even lower than the COPD. So it's like one to three. Cool. So. so you basically kind of 
created a problem representation for this patient for all three potential diagnoses and then help to show how you can match with CHF, but it doesn't match the COPD or the, P or the PE illness groups. Okay, so that works too. Super cool. All right, how about scenario two? We have a first year resident now who's got a 42 year old female with abdominal pain. Um, what does this patient have, by the way? Constipation, right? But we get to the end of the history and the resident says, you know, I don't think this is appendicitis, but I don't know what else this might be. So they're first year resident. They are cued not to miss the acute abdomen, those who are FMIM grads, right? Do not miss acute abdomen. All right, so it's not an appy, but now I don't know what it is. So clue, what clue did you guys choose for this scenario? What clue do you think applies? Differential diagnosis not linked to the case. Okay. Maybe she didn't really give us much of a differential. She gave us an. She gave us appy. Exactly. No. No other. But there's. No but there's big. nothing else, right? So definitely, we're having trouble down here. I agree. Any other thoughts? I think there's a couple spots you could work from here. Disorganized. Yeah, it's disorganized. Yeah, we probably don't have all the information that we should have. So this is just, it's all over the place. So I like this scenario because it's an example of how you can't do this wrong. If you choose any of these strategies based on the information is missing, you're going to get some history, it's disorganized, you're going to create a problem representation for her, the differential has nothing to do with the case, then you could use this, right? You could say, well, tell me what in the story, you, you say it doesn't sound like appendicitis, so you could say what in the story does support an appy, or you could say, tell me what you would expect an appy to present like, and then you ask them, to, they're basically giving you their illness script for what an appy is in. And then they'll get to the end of that and say, yeah, so this definitely isn't an appy. So now what? Now then you teach a general rule from micro skills and give them the illness script for constipation. Or you create a problem representation that leads you to constipation. Or you go in and get some history from the patient. And pretty quickly, as you're taking the history, it will become clear that she is constipated when you focus in on the fact that she has not pooped in four days, right? Okay, so you see how this is very flexible. You can't use it wrong. And anything that you do on this side helps your learners get to the answer themselves. Okay, thinking back to our micro skills, as opposed to just giving them the answer. So you help forward their development more when you help them do this. Of course, the same rules apply from micro skills, all right? Don't, don't do this to people until tell, tell you've totally beaten them up and pimped them to death. If they're fatigued, if they're truly stuck, recognize that, give them what they need to succeed, and let them roll on. Any questions about this model? And then I have one final thing for us to do. You can do a pro-con debate on whether or not you talk to residents about this uh, at another time. I've done that. So I have one more thing I would like for us to do. And I would like for you to help me develop an illness script for some prototypical common hospice palliative scenario. So a diagnosis that you all make on a pretty regular basis 
I don't know, it might be constipation. I know you guys do that a lot with all the opioid meds. But what is a prototypical hospice palliative diagnosis that, that we should have an illness script for, that we should think about what the illness script is? Neuropathic pains. Are we have agreement? Neuropathic pain. So remember, for an illness script, what are the three elements that we need? We need the predisposing conditions. We need the pathophys. And then we need the clinical presentation, right? So what are the prototypical predisposing conditions for a patient who presents with neuropathic pain? Their pain is neuropathic. Okay, so they've had chemo. So this nerve root thing is really important. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna rewrite this. It's the beauty of the dry erase board, right? Actually, let's do this. The nerve root issue goes here, right? So we'll say chemo or surgery. Now this is really some of the path of some of the pathophys we're talking about, right? So there's some sort of nerve root trauma. Any other predisposing conditions? Common gender, common age, common other medical history. Yeah, diabetes comes to mind for this family doc. So Real life is a little more complicated than those nice little, you know, gout and uh, strep throat examples I gave you, right? Often there can be multiple possible predisposing conditions. Anything else predisposing wise? Okay. Anything else under the pathophysiology that's important to remember? Especially when we think about how it's going to present in a minute. Does it just have to be Mm-hmm. And how would you describe the process when it happens peripherally? So if it's not nerve root trauma, is it still trauma to the peripheral nerves, would you say? I got to rewind back a little farther than you guys are to remember all my medical school physiology, but um, it seems like whether it's drugs, somebody beating up on a nerve, or too much sugar, nerves don't like any of those things. They tend to get grumpy. Anything else under pathophys? It's pretty, 
Compression would come under the number of problems. Oh, okay, sure, yeah. Why did that one up here? Or can I put that up here? So how do these folks present when they present? So yeah, so if it's peripheral, kind of more commonly. So it depends a little bit too on what's happening here. So probably you can have a couple of different, you probably have several illness scripts for this, right? You have one illness script for these peeps and you have one illness script for these peeps and one, Ill, you know, right? Okay. So in real, in real life, things don't always line up as neatly as before. But if you were going to teach, you know, a resident who's rotating with you guys here at Kobacker, or if you're on consult service over at Riverside or all the other amazing things that you all do, how would you, if you wanted to describe the illness script for neuropathic pain, and maybe you would just pick one of these if you have five different illness scripts, anybody can give me an example of how you might describe that illness script out to somebody? So if you have a resident, and let's face it, most you guys see senior residents most of the time, right? So they probably know what neuropathic pain is most of the time. But let's say they didn't, or you had a student, um, and you were trying to teach them some of this. What's the illness script for neuropathic pain? Can anybody give me an example of what that would sound like? How would you teach that? So if we were to do the chemotherapy-induced, um, it could be any age, gender, um, but generally someone who has had chemotherapy, specific types of chemotherapy, um, who's presenting with numbness, tingling, uh, burning pain in their hands and or feet, uh, secondary to peripheral nerve trauma. Yeah, fabulous. Is the onset of that usually acute? It's usually subacute yeah. after. So I think we're about out of time, so we'll wrap up. But remember when we talked about micro skills, when we talked about teaching a general rule. This is a format I would encourage you to think about using when that general rule pertains to making a diagnosis on something. Um, again, because it kind of feeds into this. You're, whether you say, I'm giving you an illness script or not, you're helping them build their mental catalog of all of these illness scripts when you do this this way. Okay, any questions? Cool. All right, so believe it or not, there are people who get PhDs in this stuff. There are, there are dozens of these kinds of models for how learners come to their clinical reasoning and how they make decisions medically. So I've given you the tip of the iceberg today in how this works. But I think you can still use this tip pretty usefully um, in everyday life. So go out there and help folks get their clinical reasoning. Thanks. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content, make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us.
to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.